Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in, and you're listening to College Knowledge. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in. This is Brian Torres, and you're listening to College Knowledge. Today, we have a very special episode because today we are here with a special guest, Dr. Richard Neancori from SpedEx. He's the CEO and founder of SpedEx, has a PhD in education policy and a bachelor's in sociology. Right, it's great here to be here with you today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Take time. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to be here and speak with an audience because I know that for you, education has been a huge part of your life. Absolutely. And there's a lot of kids out there who they're looking for guidance. They're looking for mentors. They're looking for people who have been there, done that, and have the knowledge to pass down. So to help them and what they're trying to accomplish and their goals. So, uh, so Dr. Nancori, um, why don't you just talk about a little bit like uh, who you are, where you're from? Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, I was born in Uganda okay, um, wow. and my family came here when I was four years old. Um, my mother's an American. My father's a Ugandan. Um, we left because Idi Amin, who was a dictator at the time, took over the country. He was throwing uh, people out um, left and right. And it was only just a matter of months before we were going to be thrown out of the country. So my parents picked us up and left. And how did that translate to you getting here in the United States? Yeah, so we spent some time in a refugee resettlement in the Netherlands. And because my mother was an American, we were able to then uh, fly to Illinois, um, where uh, my dad was going to start his PhD. Wow, wow. Um, looking back on that, like a little now, uh, you might be getting ahead, but looking back on that, like a little now, like how do you think that like that initial story, like kind of shaped who eventually you were going to be, or like did that create some type of like drive and motivation uh, to do something? Yeah, absolutely, it did. So my, um, so we have a, a lot of educators in our family. So my dad, of course, is a college professor taught economics at Clemson University for about 25 years. Uh, my mother was a health uh, nurse educator at um, McMaster University, which is outside of Toronto. And um, before that, my grandfather was actually a regional minister of education in Uganda. So um, being in education and the value of education, um, especially for immigrant families, is something that... Um, uh, I hold very dearly and I uh, think it's just quite important. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I agree with what you say um, about immigrant families. Because for, uh, for me, being from Colombia, uh, my mom from the beginning, something that she always pushed, she was like, you know, hey, I might not be able to give you money or, or this, but something you can always have and you can always get that nobody can take from you is uh, definitely your education. That's right. No one can take your education from you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, so I think let's start off uh, in high school where a lot of our listeners are from. Uh, what was high school like for you? Where'd you go? Uh, so I went to high school in South Carolina, in upstate South Carolina. Um, uh, the school's called uh, Daniel High School. Um, it's It draws kids from three different towns, um, Six Mile Central and Clemson. All of those towns have very distinct characters and populations. And so I started high school in the mid-80s, and very prevalent during that time was tracking 
Um, and there was certainly tracking by performance. So there was an honors track all the way to a vocational track. And then there was tracking by race. And um, sometimes we experience, my brother and I uh, experience being tracked um, because of talent and performance and also um, because of race. Yeah. So I know that like uh, for tracking, um, we've heard the term in some places, but in education, uh, I haven't heard it as much. But can you like a little bit of explain like uh, how that? Yeah. How so tracking that? is um, essentially grouping students by performance levels. Um, sometimes people group by ability levels. Um, generally, you know, you know, one of the things that we believe in our in our company and we believe um, just writ large is that there's no such thing as an average um, that you see talent is quite variable across subjects, across grade levels, across ages. And sometimes, uh, you know, kids can be ready for high level math early and sometimes they're ready for high level math later on. But what tracking does, it assumes a set of averages that, um, you know, that say, all right, if you're on if you're on track to college, then, you know, here we're going to give you this kind of content. If you're on track to, you know, going to work out in the farm, which lots of my my uh, classmates did. And, you know, that's it was fairly agrarian um, still growing up like people had farms that produced um, uh, income for them. Uh, you know, you saw you saw that. Um, but what we've also seen in the literature is that tracking um, can reduce student outcomes, especially if tracking is based on other characteristics like race, for example, or gender. Um, uh, and, and even with gender, that can be positive and negative. Yeah. Um, you know, I think now that you say that, like, for me uh, in high school, I guess that I was uh, unconsidered was like the college track or like the fast track. Um, I graduated uh, high school early and all that. But for me, um, I think I feel that I dedicate that more to uh, the people that I hung out with, because I think that like all of my friends, like I chose to uh, to be friends with some of the people, like the top, top people in the class, the first, second, third people uh, and grades wise and all that stuff, uh, because I felt that being surrounded by those people was automatically going to um, I was I was going to average out to be. Uh, to be up in that range. And I think that that's very true. So how do you, how do you react, how do you react to that? Like with tracking, because if you are a student who is, let's say like you had a few bad test scores going uh, through like seventh and eighth grade in middle school, cause that's mm -hmm. really when it starts mm -hmm. uh, for your track to high school. So let's say you had a few bad test scores and now like they want to put you in either a remedial class or mm -hmm. in a class that's average, but you know that, uh, that you're better than that. Or, you know, that um, just, if you, if you get, uh, if you get thrown into competition with people at, of a higher level, then that's going to draw you to be, uh, to be better. So yeah. how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, a couple of things. Um, the first is uh, we know that, you know, heterogeneous groupings, so mixing people of various backgrounds, of various performance levels, various interests, is actually um, good for both learning and creating a better society. Right. right. Um, what you mentioned, though, as you're seeking to be around the people who are like the smartest kids, the highest performers, what you're actually talking about there is social capital. Social. Um, and there's a lot of great research on social capital. And so these are the things that we bring by virtue of the groups and the networks that we're part of. So you could imagine like if you're in a network of people who are always, you know, winning academically or winning athletically. Um, 
that that you're going to absorb some of that um, uh, in your own performance. But more importantly, you'll be in a network that keeps lifting you up towards whatever goal that is. Right. And you could imagine for kids who are segregated. And so we work a lot with kids with disabilities. And sometimes we find um, many really talented kids with learning or behavior or attention issues who've been segregated away from their peers. And we know that, you know, learning is social and um, that kind of segregation sometimes for, the, for, for, for some kids actually gets in the way. And so if you want to be part of a winning team, you go join a winning team. Like if that's your goal, if you want to be the best writer in the world, you go seek out the best writers in the world. If you want to be the best gymnast in the world, like you go seek out those people who are the best and those people who are the best tend to stick together. And, and it happens all the way across the lines as well. So when you want to tap into a network, um, you got to imagine the network where you want to be, not the network where you necessarily are in that moment. All right. So, um, I think moving on, uh, let's talk about uh, your senior year of high school, uh, your senior year, getting ready to go on. You know, senior year is a big year for a lot of people because a lot of people are not decided yet. You know, you're putting in late minute, last minute applications. You're trying to find those scholarships, yeah. you're trying to figure out how you're going to make things happen. It's, it's from what I, from my experience, it's very stressful. Yeah, senior year can be a can be a whirlwind. And um, one of the things that I was fortunate to have were really good guidance counselors who cared a lot about me and wanted to see me succeed. Um, and uh, one, so so one point in time, um, I had a guidance. The secretary of the guidance counselors um, suite uh, sent someone to go get me because recruiters from top colleges and universities were on campus that day, and I just didn't know about it. And later on, I would find out that my guidance counselor didn't really feel like I could be part of those elite schools. Um, and so she, she sent word and I actually interviewed with, you know, people from Columbia and, you know, other types, NYU and, and Harvard, other types of Ivies. Um, and then I settled on um, going to Emory University um, and towards towards the end of my, so I graduated, it was all great. Um, you know, got the financial aid, um, was ready to go. And then I got diagnosed with cancer. And, um, so I wasn't going to be able to, you know, go to college the way that I thought I would. And between my, the end of my, um, freshman, the end of my senior year in high school and the beginning of my freshman year, I was in and out of hospitals and I was very blessed to have a remission, um, uh, that had the cancer go away. And then I started college, but when I started college, like I was still fairly sick from the drugs and from being, you know, just recuperating from all of the treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, and so getting there, uh, first of all, getting to college is like, you know, your first day on campus, it's, it's, you know, it can be a new experience. And here I was just, you know, barely making it. Right. And uh, I think I showed up to, to school like 105 pounds. Like you guys wow. can't see me, but like my 215 pound guy, um, so, you know, so, um, so that was, uh, that was tough. Um, and just learning like how to do freshman year, that was an even tougher thing. Yeah, uh, last episode on the podcast, I talked about adversity and just like 
you know, how everybody has like those defining moments in life. And I don't, that's, that's definitely one of the hardest things uh, that I don't know what it feels like, but I can only imagine that that must've been. It was hard. It was hard. And all I wanted to do was I know, I knew like one of my weakest areas was in calculus at that point. And so I had my parents and, and teachers bring me like, calculus textbooks to the hospital so that I could actually, uh, you know, stay ahead. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this. And I did. So that's great. But yeah, like, you know, we all have adversity that comes to us and it's how you, it's how you see it. If you see it as defining you or you just see it as, you know, one of those things that's along the way. But, um, yeah, I was, you know, I went to Emory university, uh, here in Atlanta, um, great school. I loved it. i really struggled hard my first semester and I couldn't figure out why. Like I was going to class every day and I was studying and I was going to office hours and I would see the other kids on my hall who, um, you know, had gone to all these elite private schools uh, in the Northeast and, and some really great public schools like I went to. And I was just like, I don't I, I was like, I know I'm as smart as these kids. Like, but why aren't I? performing like they are with like half the effort. So I pulled a kid aside. I'll never forget it. Um, He was this kid who taught me about the stock market and everything. And I said, how's it that you guys never go to class and you rarely ever study, but you seem to always be, you know, like 4.0 students and making it. And he says, you know, here's the key. It's like, are you a test taker or are you a writer? And he's like, if you're a test taker, only take classes with tests at the end. If you're a writer, only take classes um, that have you write papers or short essays. And I was definitely a writer. I could write really well. And that changed my entire uh, college trajectory because from freshman, from my second semester of freshman year, all the way through my PhD program, I was essentially a 4.0 student. And it was that one piece of advice that he was actually taught um, in his college prep classes in high school and how to do that. And so I asked him a question. I was like, well, how do you know if a class requires a test or a paper? He said, well, you just call the professor and you ask. And I was like, you can do that? And he was like, yeah, you pay their salaries. You can ask them anything you want. And that was a big difference from how a lot of kids think about um, college and how I was trained to think about it. You know, I thought they were doing me a favor. And right. he was coming from a mindset where, no, like, they're here for me and my growth, not the other way around. Yeah. And as soon as I figured that out, like college was a much better experience um, from the time I, I, you know, finished undergrad all the way through grad school. So why do you pick uh, sociology going into Emory? Yeah, I started, I had so many different majors. I started off like uh, in economics, like my dad, and I hated it. And then I went to, um, I was going to do Spanish and international relations. And then I figured if I want to learn Spanish, I should just go to like Spanish speaking countries, which later on I did. And, and then I, then I was like, what am I really interested in? And I'm really interested in how individuals interact with larger systems Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And how does the system inter, inter make you, you, and how do you make the system? And that's the heart of sociology. So let's see, uh, McDaniel College. 
Mm-hmm. So from Emory to McDaniel, how was uh, how was that? Yeah, McDaniel is a small liberal arts school in Western Maryland. So after um, after I finished undergrad, we had a small recession, and so it was hard to get a job. And oh, so okay. I joined a program called Teach for America, and I taught for four or five years, four years in Baltimore City, and I really loved teaching. Um, I started off as a special education teacher, and then an inclusion teacher. Um, and I, I just loved it. Uh, and I thought, well, let me go and um, get an education degree in curriculum and instruction um, with a specialization also in administration. Yeah. So, so, so when you graduated with a sociology degree, you, you were trying to get a job in sociology and then. It no, like here's the thing. Or? When you graduate your undergrad degree, and this is this is something I think like my generation is different with like I knew that like a lot of people I would talk to after they graduated were not in the fields unless they went to business school or like they did a hard science they didn't necessarily end up in like sociology jobs or psychology jobs mm-hmm. a lot of people went on to law school lots of folks went on to working you know, in government or, or, or business in different ways. I see. But one of the things like your college experience should give you, in my opinion, is how to think critically, how to think analytically. And when you can do that and get along with people, you can work in lots of different fields. All right. So Richard, so what made you want to pursue your PhD? When did that decision come to your head? So after I, was a teacher. I moved into various administration jobs and I knew one of the, one of the, um, uh, qualifications, a lot of, uh, school districts were looking for in senior leadership was having a doctoral degree, whether that's an EDD or a PhD. Um, and so the university of Maryland had started a field-based program, a cohort program, uh, to bring future uh, superintendents into the fold, right? So Maryland had recognized that the the talent for superintendents wasn't where they wanted it, and so they created the program with with the University of Maryland. And so I joined that cohort program. It was forty nine other folks. You know, I think I was one of the youngest people, and uh, there were about fifty people that started the cohort af- after the first class was done. There were 15 of us. And I think out of my cohort, 11 or 12 of us finished up. It was originally an EDD cohort. Um, my advisor recommended I switch over to a PhD and stack my coursework with lots of quantitative and statistical courses, um, and which is what I did. Okay. Wow. And was it, uh, do you think like at the beginning of that, uh, were they trying to like filter people out? Or? I think they're, yeah, I think the first class was like, you know, here's the rigor that we expect in a doctoral program um, at, at Maryland. Here's what we want you to get out of it. And I think lots of folks, um, there were two reasons why I think people dropped out. One, it's a really big time commitment um, to do your, to do, you know, that level of coursework. Um, and secondly, like it was tough. Like it was intellectually rigorous and I really liked that. It took me about eight years to finish my PhD. And part of that was um, I decided I wouldn't have any more um, student loan debt. I could have finished it in 
you know, three or four years. Right. But I, I didn't want to take on any more student loans. I didn't feel like that was a good way for me to, you know, to kind of um, start. Your- yeah, to start off my professional life is to be saddled with too much student loan debt. So I would work um, on the weekends as a waiter. Mm-hmm. Um I would teach, you know, graduate classes and all kind of like I had three or four jobs just to pay for the PhD program. Wow. But um, it was well worth it. Um, so uh, another question about Maryland. So were you on campus there as a student? or how So I was on campus um, during the last half of the um, program. And the first half was uh, kind of in the community, wherever, mm-hmm. uh, different cohort, uh, all around Maryland. Yeah. Okay. So... Graduating from Maryland, what was the next move? You graduated there in 2005. What was the next move? Well, during that time, I was at Maryland and McDaniel. I was working full time. So I never took time off to go say, oh, I'm going to do a master's and take time off. Or, oh, I'm going to go do a PhD and take time off. I didn't have that luxury. I wanted to keep on working. I really enjoyed teaching. So um, so throughout my career, I, I, I was in schools and then I consulted and then I was back in schools and then I consulted and then... You know, and now I'm, you know, running this this ed tech company. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about this ed tech company. Here. Yeah. So SpedEx, two years in, how's uh how was that whole process? Like where did you start and where are you now? Where do you hope to be in the next five years? Yeah, so um we so 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 I, I started SpedEx um because I felt like as it relates to students with disabilities in our public schools, we could be doing so much more. Um, I think lots of people have the rhetoric around like, yeah, all kids can learn and we can make sure that students are as successful as possible. But then as we, I would start to say, okay, well, what about kids with, um, with special needs or who have learning, um, uh, learning disabilities, you know, whatnot. And then instantly those same people who had very high expectations for every other kid were like, well, I don't know. Like, I, you know, that's the reason they're special is, and I said, no, like we, we can be doing so much more. And one of the things that occurred to me is as I was talking to loads and loads of parents and former kids with, with, uh, who are in special education, um, were that they felt like I don't have the information that I need in order to make the best choices. And I heard this from parents across all SES levels. So I heard this from parents who were literally billionaires. And I also heard this from parents who, who were quite low income, feeling like they just wanted more information about their kid, even though, you know, you can Google anything. One parent told me I can Google anything, but I just don't know if this is works for my kid. And so I was really interested in like, all right, well, how do we make choices about what kids with, with uh, in special education get? And one of the ways we can do that is to look at the plans that every kid is required to have. And so we look at those plans and we try to detect patterns of where we see acceleration towards different student outcomes, whether that's a behavioral outcome or an academic outcome or a social outcome. And then we then we ask ourselves, like, um, how do we go and validate that for a particular kid? And so then we generate um, services and products um, that help teachers and parents ensure the success of their kids. So that's amazing because I know like there's a lot of schools out there um, that like it makes it kind of uh, it makes it there's a feeling that it's like a one size fits all one. Yeah, that's very not yeah. uh, true. 
Um, so really, the only, really, the only people that can tailor it uh, is whether uh, companies like yourself or it's just the student themselves. Like if they're aware enough to know yeah. that, hey, this isn't right for me. And then they go out and find their own way, which is yeah. something that I kind of uh, did through high school was I was like, hey, I know what I want. So I'm going to try to like do my best to work my way into something that is beneficial towards me and can help uh, me in the future. So I think that's really amazing what you're doing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Students, and it's something that's necessary. And going forward, it's more necessary than ever uh, with college and student loans and uh, how hard things are really becoming. I think that just having uh, having that momentum coming from either middle school, elementary school, middle school, high school, just uh, keeping that momentum throughout the way and like showing that uh, – that there's people out there that care about what you're doing and there's people out there that want to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's something that, uh, that's very important, uh, to what we're doing. All right. So Dr. Nian Corey, uh, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for coming and talking to the college knowledge podcast. And what message would you like to send out there to everyone listening today? Yeah, Brian, it's been a special privilege to be able to have this conversation and thank you for the invitation I mean, the thing I would say to your audience as it relates to college is, number one, decide if college is the right first step for you outside of high school. Um, So my brother, his first step was into the Navy and the the skills and knowledge and um, uh, that he took from that experience just helped him out tremendously. And he often says, I think if I went to college, my first step out of high school, I might not have been successful today. And he runs a very successful cinemagraphic lighting company um, here in Atlanta. Um, And he says, you know, I went to college later and that was the right thing for me. So first of all, decide like, what's your right first step And in that time, you know, figure out if you need to work or if you need to have an international experience or so on and so forth. The second thing is, even though my father was a college professor and I should have been able to do college like, you know, nobody else. um, There are rules about and unwritten rules and unspoken rules about how success actually happens in college. So for me, remember, it wasn't all just pouring in a ton of effort to get good grades. I actually had to figure out that there were structures and patterns that I could connect to that were going to be more effective for me as a learner and things that were going to be less effective and to drop the less effective things. Like being a better test taker is nothing that I needed to do more of in my life. And the third thing is um, figure out ways that you can help um, uh, further humanity, right? Think about ways. It's, it's okay to go to work and, and make money. It's also okay to do things to help other people out, um, especially people for whom um, the world seems just particularly tough, whether that's by design or by circumstance. All right. Well, with that, Dr. Ian Corey, thank you so much. Thank for you. Here with us. Yeah. Hey guys, if you enjoyed that episode, please, please, it would mean the world to me if you shared it. Subscribe to my podcast. Please follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's at Breichner, B-R-A-Y-C-K-N-E-R. I'm gonna try to be uh, producing more content. I'm gonna be pumping it out faster. Uh, so thank you for all the support. If you've been with me since the first episode, it's all it's only gonna continue to get better. And big thank you to Dr. Richard Nee and Corey from SpedEx for coming out here today and for taking time out of his day. Talk to you guys. All right. Thank you guys.